From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Hello! Good! How are you? It's so great to see you. Thank you so much for doing this. What do you think about all the celebs getting into crypto lately? I think that that, I think, was more last year. Mm. Um, So you think it's kind of a wave that passed? No, I don't think so, but I think it's like any time that, frankly, it's when a lot of other people get into crypto, right? Other audiences too, it's when it's in the news a lot. And when does that happen? A lot of times when the prices are going up. Hi everyone, and welcome to this edition of Bloomberg Studio 1.0. I am so excited about our guest today. She started her career as a federal prosecutor going after gangs and the mob before being handed her most consequential assignment, taking down Bitcoin. Katie Hahn soon realized this new technology was much more than a tool used by criminals. She dove deep and became a crypto convert, swapping her prosecutor hat for a board seat at Coinbase and became the first female general partner at the venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz. Hahn, now a prolific crypto investor, recently launched her own fund with $1.5 billion to deploy. It's the largest fund ever raised by a sole investor. Here's my conversation with the CEO and founder of Hahn Ventures, Katie Hahn. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Katie, it's so great to have you. Great to be back here in the studio with you, Emily. I want to start with a vibe check. (laughs) Okay. What state of the crypto cycle are we in right now? It was hot, and then it got pretty cold. Mm. Well, look, Emily, zooming back, because I've been in crypto for a decade, if you can believe it, we've seen crypto be really hot and then all of a sudden not. Um, And so we've seen this before. However, I think one of the things that's a little bit different now is with each new crypto cycle, more and more people come into it. And so it's more and more pronounced each cycle. And I, I would push back on it's not. I think it depends on what area of the ecosystem you're looking at. We think developers think crypto and Web3 is still really hot. I am seeing a lot less of those, we're all gonna make it. 
hashtags. I'm seeing a lot less of them too, although I am spending less time on Twitter, so maybe that's why as well. <laughs> uh, but with eTycle, there, uh, there are new acronyms. What hasn't happened is a crypto winter in the midst of kind of really serious global macro conditions. So we have inflation kind of at record highs for our generation and in our lifetime. Um, and then we have also a war that's broken out in the Ukraine. And um, we have a number of other factors going on here. So that's very different. There was some serious carnage out there. Yeah. Celsius, Luna, three arrows. What's been your takeaways from yeah. all of that? I don't want to sit here and tell you that algorithmic stablecoins are bad because I actually think they're really interesting. Um, however, I think what happened is you had, um, in this case, you mentioned Luna and Terra. You know, that was an algorithmic stablecoin um, that was getting pretty widespread adoption um, relative to what the tech could do. I didn't realize you spent your teenage years living in Egypt and yeah. learning Arabic. Yeah. Tell me about your upbringing. I was always uprooted. Um, my dad worked for a large company and we were always moving just when I would get comfortable in one space. And I think actually that's pretty important if you fast forward and look at my career. Um, I'm comfortable being in uncomfortable situations. You know, I was didn't know uh, a lot about venture when I got into it initially. Um, I didn't know a lot about crypto when I got into it initially. And I was okay asking questions. I was okay not knowing the local acronyms or the nomenclature of a particular field. And I'm, you know, I'm taken right back to my teenage years in Cairo, moving from Houston, Texas one day to downtown Madi in Cairo the next day. You studied law. I did. You clerked for uh, Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy. That's right. You became a federal prosecutor. Mm -hmm. You were taking on prison gangs yep. and the mafia. Mm -hmm. That must have taken a really thick skin. I was doing it uh, at age 25. Um, and now if I kind of take a step back, and you know, I think that happens at different points in your career, like, whoa, if I would have analyzed that a little more at the time, and I'm kind of in some ways glad I didn't, I just dove right in, um, because I found it fascinating. There was a human aspect to it, and people's stories, and I felt like those stories mattered. So I was drawn to criminal law, and became a federal prosecutor, and I did cases involving violent crime, but then really missed trying cases, being back in the courtroom, being before the grand jury, uh, like the prosecutor you would see on TV going to try those murder cases. Doing those two-hour closing arguments. That's right, <laughs> and so moved out here to California. I indicted the largest prison gang in the world at the time, um, outlaw motorcycle gangs, hostage taking, bank robberies, armed bank robberies. There was really not a kind of criminal case by that point in my career I hadn't done it, and it was right around that time, 2012, uh, one of my bosses came in and said, let's have that same energy that you brought to those gang cases, to those murder cases, and let's go ahead and have you investigate this new criminal technology that we really need to look into and possibly shut this down. So you created the first cryptocurrency task, task force. force. How I would did. you describe it? Fortunately, several of us in the government realized at the time it's not possible also not desirable, because Bitcoin is not an entity, it's not a person, um, right, it's a protocol. And it would be like saying, let's go shut down cash, let's go shut down the internet. It's not possible, probably wouldn't be a good idea either. I was using crypto and technologies like the Bitcoin blockchain, because that's all that existed yeah. then, this is 2012, 2013, to actually uncover criminal activity. So I didn't think that that technology was bad. Frankly, it was a tool that helped me uncover nefarious activity. And by the way, it was a step level function improvement better than compliance 
by banks. Mm -hmm. I'll just go ahead and say it. That's a little bit controversial, but I had spent a decade subpoenaing large financial institutions and five times out of 10 didn't get back what I needed. Mm -hmm. One case I worked on and people always say, oh, you shut down the Silk Road. What actually happened? I was looking into something completely not having to do with anything at all of the Silk Road and came across some what looked to be some kind of odd activity. And it turns out that a couple of federal agents on the Silk Road Task Force out of Washington, D.C. were corrupt. And that is the case that I ended up indicting, and I ended up prosecuting those agents, and they both went to prison. So that's the aspect of what the Silk Road case that I worked on. I would never, never have been able to uncover that criminal activity by those agents, because they were federal agents, they knew how to cover their tracks, had they not used Bitcoin blockchain. So, right? that, so that technology right there, if they had just used wires or cash <laughs> or even bank wires, we would never have uncovered that. So you became kind of a crypto convert mm -hmm. after this. Mm -hmm. You joined the board of Coinbase That's right. very early on. How did you and Coinbase and Brian Armstrong come together? I hosted um, an event here in San Francisco at the Federal Reserve Bank. And I believe it was there that it wasn't just Brian, it was a lot of what I'll call legitimate actors in crypto who wanted to usher in this new um, wave, uh, this new ecosystem. Um, and then we brought together the heads of all kinds of agencies, really in an effort to kind of talk about building bridges. You know, the government and the crypto industry were never going to see eye to eye on a lot of things, but we did think there were some commonalities. Coinbase is a company that has suffered, they've been losing share. The valuation of the public markets has plummeted. Why do you think that is, and, and how do you think it can be fixed? Yeah, well, I think, again, a few things it's tied to. One, a large aspect of Coinbase's business now, of course, is trading revenue. And that's down when prices are down. And you know, the company's been very transparent about that long before going public. I mean, also, if you look at its S1, it specifically identifies that, um, and just how volatile crypto cycles are. So I think that's part of it. It's judged you know, by public markets as a technology stock or by, as a financial services company. By the way, I think it's both. I think it's not just a financial services company. I think it's so much more. I think it's really a portal to this whole new ecosystem. You were also on the board of OpenSea until mm -hmm. recently. Uh, there's an insider trading situation or accusation going on there. Coinbase has also had employees accused of insider trading. How much is this happening within mm. crypto companies and within the industry and how big a problem is yeah. it? Yeah, I think crypto is under the microscope. So where you have a case, uh, two cases, three cases in crypto ecosystem, which now is a trillion dollar industry, um, I think uh, multi-billion uh, approaching trillion dollar industry, um, you're always gonna be able to find examples like that. So I don't want to make too much out of a handful of cases. That said, the company, Coinbase, OpenSea, take these things incredibly seriously. Along with your position at Coinbase, yeah. you became a partner at one of the most storied venture capital firms yeah. in Silicon Valley, and that right. is Andreessen Horowitz. What was your experience yeah. at A16Z like? There I met Chris Dixon, and I met Ben Horowitz, and I met Mark Andreessen, and I had worked with them for just about a year, maybe a little bit over, when they asked me to come and co-run their crypto funds at Andreessen Hearts. Again, I jumped at that chance, and I think really that speaks to the fact that, as I've said before, things are uh, a hell yes or they're a no, and it was a hell yes for me. So Andreessen Hearts is the kind of place where if you make partner, you don't 
leave. Yeah. How did Mark and Ben respond when you said, yeah. I want to leave to start a crypto fund of my own? As you might know, Emily, um, they're an anchor. Uh, they're an anchor check into my fund, and I'm very grateful for that. You know, Mark and Chris and folks like them are also personal LPs. Um, so I, I felt very supported um, when I shared that decision. Um, and I will say that it was not running away from Andreessen Hartz, it was running to another opportunity. And you know, crypto is not, is, what do they say, it's not a spectator sport. Or it's like, you're in it, it skews very young, it's 24 seven, it's global, and it's hustle. And, at this, and that's a trade-off, it's a life trade-off. And at this point in my career and in my life, if I was going to continue to make that trade-off, I just wanted to do it and do it in a way that was really true to me. So you struck out on your own yes. to launch Han Ventures. What gave you the courage to do that? What was the spark that lit the fire? Yeah. That got you to say, I need to do this and do this now. Sure, what I set out to do was to continue to invest in this ecosystem that I think is so broad. The decision was very purposeful and the timing was very purposeful. We have an early stage fund that does seed stage, series A, even series B, and then we have what we call an acceleration fund, which is it's not a growth fund, it's a crypto growth fund, and I think those are different things, but it's later stage. It might be crypto publics. Um, certain kinds of public tokens were set up to, to hold tokens and to participate in the token ecosystem or later stage companies. I mean, you know, there are now several crypto, many crypto unicorns. The space has become really competitive. Even though you say, um, you know, crypto's had its kind of ups and downs. The thing is, a lot of people in some of those last cycles have seen the kind of venture style returns that can be had in crypto. Mm -hmm. And so you've had a lot of new funds enter the space and that's driven up competition. So what differentiates Han Ventures then yeah. from you know, all of these other crypto funds mm -hmm. or even the more traditional venture capitalists like Andreessen Horowitz or Sequoia that yeah. also have crypto funds sure. now? Well, I think a lot of traditional venture capital funds now have crypto mm -hmm. funds. It used to just be like a regulatory designation. It was like, are you an RIA, which is registered investment advisor? I would say for crypto founders today, um, it's not enough to just be an RIA, right? They, frankly, I don't even know if a lot of them care. That's a regulatory designation. Mm -hmm. What crypto founders today want to know is, do you live and breathe crypto? Do you inhale the discords? Are you part of the community? Do you participate in governance? Are you going to be um, staking these kind of crypto verbs um, out there? And if you're not really in this space full time, I think it's very hard to run a successful crypto fund. Mm -hmm. We don't have a hedge fund component. Mm -hmm. So we're not sitting here buying and trading and selling. Um, that's a hedge fund structure. And there are crypto hedge funds. Um, we're not one. We're making seven to 10 year bets. Just how hard is it to launch a crypto fund from scratch? You know, it's hard, but it's not impossible. We don't have a crystal ball. I don't know, I can't predict cycles, but I knew that we were in a cycle where you saw so much fervor and excitement around the space. And I already talked about what makes us different, but I think one thing also is we are a nimble strike force. We don't fish in the same pond. We have the crypto natives, we have efficient execution, we have operators, seasoned operators who really know how to stick the landing. And I think that's reflected in our culture. I would say the only thing that's changed in our strategy as a result of the market correction is really more of a focus on early stage, but we still have our late stage fund. And when we see valuations, which I think we'll still see correct, um, spoiler, I think we'll continue to see some corrections. 
And um, so we might deploy our later stage fund a little bit more slowly. It might not be on an even 50-50 cadence, and that's okay. Long-term, our strategy hasn't changed. Long-term, we're committed to the space. How much do you think valuations are going to correct? You know, it's just, I can't give you a one-size-fits-all answer because crypto is not a monolith. You have some crypto companies that really follow more of an enterprise SaaS business model. You have others that are layer one protocols. Um, you have still others that are consumer-facing applications. And I think one of the things we're seeing right now is the infrastructure layer. And that's where we're spending a lot of our time, by the way. And we think more and more use cases will come about when the infrastructure layer is in place. Um, so my own view is we are not rushing to deploy. We're certainly not getting caught up. Do you get VC FOMO? And I how try do you not to. avoid that? You know, look, I think it's very easy to get into that mindset, mm -hmm. right? It's because it's a competitive sport. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a competitive space. And I think I'd be lying if I said that that doesn't influence anyone. I try to, what I do, and I think I do differently, is I try to take stock of that. Oh, that's the FOMO mentality kicking in. That's bad. Um, again, you don't want to overcorrect though. What we look for is we look for amazing founders. It doesn't matter if I think valuations will correct. If there are amazing founders, there's a huge TAM. We also look for what's your regulatory plan? If you're launching a token, what's your plan to comply with the law? What's your plan for security, by the way? We've seen a lot of hacks in the space. We want to really dive in there and make sure that the founders have been thoughtful about, especially if they're custodying customer funds, keeping those funds secure. If it's a cross-chain bridge, what are the exploits? Have you changed your strategy at all, given the downturn? Mm -hmm. Like, have you backed out of any deals mm -hmm. or decided not to yeah. do certain deals yep. because the conditions have changed yeah. since you raised the fund. We have decided not to do certain deals. We've never backed out of a deal. We have decided not to do a few deals. Because? Um, because we think that pricing was ahead of progress, mm -hmm. candidly. And we might have been wrong about that, Emily. We might have been wrong about that. But I think if we were wrong not to do a couple of deals, um, better that we might have been right. Because if we were wrong about that, I think we can find a way to still invest in those projects later. Well, one thing I'm hearing is that a lot of dry powder has just stacked yes. up. Because yep. all these funds mm -hmm. raised a lot of money. Yep. You raised, what, what, what was it, the biggest fund ever mm -hmm. for a single person, mm -hmm. not just a woman, yep. anyone. Yep. Are you confident you're going to have a place to put all that money? I am, but if I don't have a place to put it, I'm not just going to go willy-nilly deploy it. One of the things that we told our LPs, even during the period when we raised our fund, which was when crypto was undeniably still on a bull run, we said that we are going to be pretty steadfast sticking to a two-year deployment cycle. Um, and you know, I think one thing that's changed is that might have lengthened. Mm. Um, it certainly hasn't shortened, mm -hmm. but we will, again, we have we feel very good that we have the capital to back great teams when we see them. What about NFTs? NFTs are you, are you concerned about the declining demand? We are going to increasingly live in a digital world. And I happen to think that if you live in a digital world, you're going to want to own digital goods in that world. You're not just going to be satisfied to rent them, which is what we do now. We buy our content from walled gardens. Without digital scarcity, which is what NFTs unlock, you don't really own anything. You're subject to the whims of a platform. And I think NFTs and digitally scarce goods fundamentally change that. I think you'll see NFTs back again, um, but we are spending a lot of time in the infrastructure layer. Like I tell you, zero knowledge, technologies, right. scalability. We think of that as like the plumbing. Uh, if you think of the fiber optic cables. Remember, you couldn't have had YouTube and Netflix with dial-up. You couldn't have st streamed content. The same is true of crypto use cases. We think that there will be a lot of new use cases unlocked 
when the infrastructure is there, when it's more efficient, when it's more user-friendly. And so we're spending a lot of our time there. President Biden issues this crypto executive order. There are um, a number of ports uh, that are coming due. What do you want to see from the administration when it mm -hmm. comes to regulation? And are yeah. you optimistic that we will get there? Yeah. We were so delighted to see that executive order. This is not something you should normally be delighted about. But why we were is because it was to us a real recognition that this is the U.S. government saying this field isn't going anywhere. This field is growing, and it's growing so much that we are going to direct every single agency in the federal government to come up with a plan here. I think, you know, we take a step forward, but then you see, you know, we're a big government, we're a big system. We have states, we have local entities. So we take a step forward with the EO, and then we take some steps back sometimes, too. And I think what I um, see is crypto founders are confused by that. Mm. They're starting to think, well, I could go to this jurisdiction where there's a single regulator. And you don't have 50 states with different rules. It's the US government that needs to start taking stock of the fact that right now, Emily, in China, um, there's a quarter of a billion ECNY wallets, a quarter of a billion. Um, we're still talking about whether there should be a government central bank digital currency. We're still studying that. So you think we're, we're going to fall behind? The United States I think is we already are falling behind. Fall behind China. I think we're falling behind. Mm -hmm. What are the dangers of falling behind China? Um, and the rest of the world. This is years ahead, so I don't want people to take a headline and say, oh, I think the U.S. dollar will be, you know, no longer the global currency, reserve global currency. I'm not saying that now. But fast forward decades, and if you no longer need to use the dollar because you have an alternative, um, I think that's a real problem. What would we use instead? Well, I think that there are going to be stable coins out there that people who have access to a smartphone will use. There is a demand for it. We see a 285% year-over-year growth with stablecoins. So people are clearly liking the idea of this. Now, again, there have been some spectacular failures too, but not all stablecoins are created the same. But I think the important thing is that we really do need to not just quash innovation. What do you think of how Gary Gensler, the chair mm -hmm. of the SEC, and how he's approaching it? One of the things that I hear from founders is that they're very confused because they get told, come in, register, just come in and talk to us. But you have the one company who's done the ultimate act of going in and registering. Coinbase filed an S1. Um, and still, you know, there's a lot of saber rattling still going on, I think. Um, and again, I don't want to single out the SEC, um, you know, and I don't want to suggest that um, anything they're doing is bad. I do think, though, that right now there's a lot of confusion. And one of the pieces of confusion stems from the fact that, you know, and it started with the ICO mania back in, what, 2016, 2017, I can't even remember which year now, where the SEC was very loud about securities. A lot of them were securities, but the space has changed. And so to still view it through the ICO lens when so much has happened over the last five years in the space, um, I think is a mistake. What do you have to say to the skeptics out there who just don't believe in the future of Web3 mm -hmm. mm -hmm. and don't yeah. see where this is going? Yeah. I would say don't judge the current state of innovation by the end state of innovation. I hear from a lot of these skeptics, and by the way, I'm friends with a lot of these skeptics too. I don't only want to live in a crypto bubble. They want to see the use cases, if, especially if they're not technical. Well, when am I going to use it? What will I use it for? And I think one of the things that's not appreciated is how quickly the infrastructure here is catching up. And once you have kind of, a, once you have really scalable blockchains that can handle um, a lot of throughput and are very efficient, I think that unlocks a whole lot of use cases. People are spending more time on screens. That curve is 
up and to the right. Whether we like it or not, that is the future. I mean, those who have kids know that kids spend more time online. They want digital things too. And I think um, to dismiss it, it is a bit generational, I do find. Not always, but it is a bit generational. If you talk to kids about being able to have money online, they instantly get that concept. They're comfortable not having to hold something in their hand to think it has value. Take us to the end state. Do Google and Amazon and sure. Facebook and yeah. Apple yeah. still exist? I believe they will still exist. I mean, it depends what you talk about when you talk about the end state. I mean, I think that, you know, I think for decades those companies will still be around. But the important thing is I think this new ecosystem is going to represent a challenge to them. I do think that um, those entities, um, decentralized forces, are coming and will cut into those entities' profits and revenues. So we have a little rapid fire section. If you could belong to any altcoin tribe, which oh, would it be? Gosh, um, there is no way I'm answering that because I will get trolled on Twitter by every other altcoin tribe. Um, I'm a crypto maximalist. I'm a crypto maximalist. All right, well, I'm not picking one. Book or podcast you're binging now? Yes. Okay, I'm. I yes, I am. Oh gosh. I'm binging on Wheat Crashed. Something that brings you simple joy. You know, one of the things that I love and I've missed um, being away from this summer is swimming. Uh, I just love, I find like some of my best thoughts come to me while I'm moving. Career philosophy. Mm, yeah. Do a job where you know 50% of the job and where you're gonna learn 50% of the job. Um, again, that goes back to no growth in the comfort zone, no comfort in the growth zone. Studio 1.0 is produced by Lauren Ellis and edited by Matthew Soto. I'm Emily Chang, your host and executive producer. If you like us, please leave a review and check out our library of shows with the biggest influencers in tech and media, including recent episodes with Alphabet and Google CEO Sundar Pichai, Amazon CEO Andy Jassy, YouTube CEO Susan Wojcicki, and more. Thanks for listening. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.